0: Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein Growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson.
1: Hello and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We have another great episode lined up with special guests, expert insights and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. On today's episode, our special guest is Myron Stein, president of Stein C Company. Welcome back to the show, Myron. Thank you, David. So, you know, 45 years ago, Stein Brands started out as just a small regional brand here in the United States. But today, Stein has grown to become a truly global brand, with business reach in North America, South America, Europe, and China. From the U.S., to Brazil, and to Ukraine, we look forward to learning about Stein's growing global footprint and how our work in these international markets helps our U.S. operations. So let's get started. So, Myron, as we talked about, Stein started out 45 years ago as really kind of a small regional brand. I'd call it an upper Midwest seed brand. But again, today it's it's really truly does have a global presence that I don't know if everybody's aware of that. So I wanted to visit with you about some of the uh, international business we do, some of the markets we're in, and what that means for us as a brand. So I guess, first of all, I wondered if you can kind of just give us an idea, what are some of the places today where Stein brand is sold around the globe? Okay, so obviously we have the US market.
0: Yep. In the North American sector, in the US part, we've also stemmed into Canada lately with Stein Brand specifically. And we're also in South America. Stein Brand is now in South America, and we started that in 2018, I believe, began the, the efforts of that. Then last year, we began to take Stein Brand very seriously into Europe. And then, yeah, we have China. We've worked in China. We've done both. Uh, We we have sold some inbred material to Chinese companies, and we've done a a limited amount of branding in that area. We've done a lot of licensing in all these areas I'm I'm talking about, but, but we're now making a strong effort to bring the actual brand into those geographies.
1: Yeah, I was going to say when I was doing research for this episode, one of the things that's hard to kind of draw that line because, as you said, several of these markets that we're talking about are markets that we have been involved in or working with either on an outlicensed side or, or had some sort of maybe side operations we were working on, but for purposes of what we're talking about today, trying to talk about, you know, the point when Steinbrand is the is the brand that's out there in that new country or new region. Mm-hmm. So curious, as you ran down that list, like where were some of the very first places that we took Steinbrand outside of the U.S.? As I look back, we did a
0: limited amount of work in China probably 11 years ago. Uh, but South America was the first, what I consider, Substantial effort in starting the brand up, and so we so we did that in Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, and Uruguay, and we had been in South America for oh gosh 20, 20 plus years prior to that doing research down sure. there. We worked with one of the main companies that's down there, and uh, they did you know our increase work. Uh, they had our research equipment, and then that company had decided they wanted to come to the US market, which was probably a good move for them. And so we, we dissolved that relationship and then decided, okay, we'll just do all that work ourselves in South America. So, so we now have a substantial breeding operation, which we run in Argentina, and we have a, a sizable operation in Brazil and so both of those entities make new genetics for those geographies, and sell a lot, probably sell more corn actually in Brazil than we do in the U.S. And then in Argentina, really, it's it's difficult to protect your intellectual property rights on the soybean side, so the focus has been on corn, and so we have a sizable corn business also in
1: Argentina. Hmm. Okay, and I guess you know you said that you we have formed a research organization down there to do off-season research and production. They also do breeding work I assume for the for their own brand or for Stein brand there in South America, but do they also collaborate with our US teams from a research standpoint? They do. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'm curious have we seen products that have been developed well in in one market that find their way into another market? Absolutely, especially in Argentina. Like on
0: the corn side, we've been able to take some of our inbred lines and combine them with some of the inbred lines they have down there. And they have some hybrids that are half, you know, US germplasm and then half Argentine germplasm. When you look at Brazil, their maturities are just much, much later. So they have much, much later corn hybrids and soybean lines. However, some of their early soybean lines, they've developed out of that breeding program in Brazil, we have brought back to use in our far southern geographies here in the U.S. And and we haven't, uh, we, we brought one back and we had some production issues
1: with it, but we'll probably do some more of that work. So one potential payoff for a U.S. grower is that now we're expanding the areas where we're developing these products that may eventually find their way into a bag for a grower here in the, in the States. Yep. Absolutely. So when it comes to South America, you know, I'm sure that global markets all vary, right? So what are some of the things that probably are fundamentally different about marketing our brand in South America that you've observed?
0: Well, believe it or not, in South America, the growers like the idea of Stein as a brand because it, you know, when you talk about it being a family-based company, they like that. When you talk about it being research-driven, they like that. Some some differences there compared to the US market is it's it's not as profitable of a market relative to the US market it's harder to for instance in Argentina you, you can't it's it's difficult for a seed company to go down there with soybeans and to protect your intellectual property rights almost impossible so it's it's hard for us to justify working hard to help that specific geography get new genetics. And much of the work we do down there now is simply increased work for our breeding program here in the U.S. Sure. We sent it down there to, it's part of the breeding program, part of the winter work. So yeah, there's some challenges there. Now the corn side, on the other hand, because you can protect yourself on the corn side, there's a number of opportunities. And it's very interesting to to see what those are, and like I said, it's interesting to take our material and take it down there and combine it with some of their material and
1: and to get something very unique and different. And in terms of channel to market, I mean, is it a similar path to market as we see here in the U.S., or is the sales flow different? It's similar.
0: Argentina is very much like the U.S. Brazil has some very, very large what we would call dealers here in the U.S. that produce their own product and then they uh, sell
1: it. So they're producing their own product and selling it, you know, under your brand name. I'm curious, you know, here in South America, you said earlier that obviously we've been there for a number of years from a research and a production side, but only recently brought the brand into that area. Did the reputation precede us in any sense that I mean, do growers down there know us as a brand, or is it all really brand new when we came in in 19 or 2018? They knew of us, and
0: it wasn't as hard of a story to tell as I thought it would be. And they knew of us simply for the fact that some of our research work down there, my father's name, was used now and again. So that helped us
1: get started. Yeah. So reputation preceded us. So switching gears from South America, you mentioned that uh, we've we've done some work in the China market. You said that was maybe whatever, a decade or so ago. Can you kind of encapsulate what kind of work that's been? Yeah. So China, which they have
0: a—I was there 11 years ago. I will tell you when I was out in the country, I felt like I was in Iowa. So they have a lot of potential, especially on the corn side. And so we were there working with different companies, offering some of our inbred lines that had come out of our breeding program to be used in, in their programs. And we offered uh, hybrids for them to look at and screen and, and figure out, okay, is that working here or not working here? And so that was the start of it. And I, I do believe we have sold some inbred lines to them at this point but we're not doing a lot of branded work at this point they know who stein is they know the brand name but there's not a bag floating out there with stein on it that uh, at least not not that right. we know about <laughs> right right at this point we have a good reputation there people like my father there they like uh, what he represents they like what he's done We've had a couple people here that started with us back uh, 11, 10, 11 years ago that helped us get into that market that have led us the right direction and uh, had us do the right things.
1: So I guess let's talk a little bit about the European market. You said that's kind of one of the newer ventures here just in the last year or two starting up uh, efforts to market Stein brand in Europe. Tell us a little bit about that project. So
0: Europe, you know, in, in most countries in Europe, in fact, in the EU, so anybody involved with the EU, GMOs are not allowed. We work with a company there that takes our genetics, both corn and beans, and our conventional genetics because we maintain sizable conventional programs. And uh, on the corn side, for instance, they they bring the lines over there and they make sure they're Perfectly non GMO. They purify them in greenhouses. And so they get that material 100% GMO free. And so then we sell conventional corn hybrids in those geographies. I was in France. I was very impressed with the French farmer and what they're doing with corn. I think that some of our corn genetics would really help them out. And they're very high management over there. So we have some genetics that I think would just work very, very well in their practices. When you look at the European market right now, I would tell you uh, we're Romania, Hungary, Ukraine, Serbia, France, uh, soon to be Italy. And probably our number one country would be Romania. That's where we're doing the best. Ukraine would be number two. Then it'd probably be a tie between Serbia and Hungary. And, and for corn, France To me, France is a really great opportunity for us. And this year, we're going to be trying hard to do some
1: work in Italy for the first time. So those are the main countries. I know at one time, some of those were not members of the EU. So that creates a little bit of a difference because I know some cases, some countries were allowing GMO and some were not. I don't know the status of all those countries now, but... You said France, for example. I mean, I guess you mentioned Ukraine, and obviously we all all pay attention to the news. So I'm just curious of of how that goes in these days where we know what's going on in Ukraine, and is that impacting their attempts to get this project going in that neck of the woods? We appear to be
0: doing relatively well considering the conditions there. That is the biggest market that we have. And then Russia would probably be the second biggest, but, you know, right now there aren't a lot of people— wanting to do anything in Russia. Probably the biggest stumbling block with Ukraine is that GMOs are not accepted, but the farmers want GMOs. <laughs> oh, really? So if you're a seed company, you cannot market a GMO, but the farmers want GMOs and they're getting their hands on GMOs. So they're they're just figuring out where to get GMOs and, and they're using GMOs. And you, you, cannot, you cannot properly do that as a seed company. Right. <laughs> and we want to do things right over there. And so we haven't been able to participate in that part of the market okay. at this point.
1: And I guess when you say they have interest in GMO, is it from a, from a herbicide tolerance standpoint? Is it from an insect standpoint Her- or just kind of everything? Her- herbicide herbicides. So they see what's happening in other parts and would like to have a stake in some of that and maybe be more efficient. You know, in in our system, we have, certainly on the corn side, of course, we have a lot of hybrids that are pretty uh, conventional in terms of their approach to population and, and row spacing. Then, of course, we have a set of products that do extremely well that are higher management products, right? I guess I'm curious, as you look at that EU market, you said France seems to be very advanced. They're certainly interested in these things, where are they on the spectrum in terms of population and fertility and row spacing and some of those things? So France has, they have smaller
0: fields and their populations, they will raise their populations. I'm not sure statistically, if you looked at all of the, you know, the farmers growing corn in France, what their average row width would be. It's probably not as narrow as we'd want it to be, I'm guessing, but they'd be the first country that would probably easily switch to a narrow row configuration if they could see the benefits to it.
1: And, of course, all those decisions are, are made not only based on the cultural practices, but there's you know lots of reasons, political and economic reasons, for why they might plant products the way they do you know, mm-hmm. in, the, in that market. Yeah. So talking about all of these markets, and again, I would say, you know, none of these really existed for us, uh, certainly when I came to the company. So it's been exciting to watch us grow from, a, from a, again, just a U.S.-based brand to having some of these, some presence around the globe in all these different markets. How would you say, because you get a chance to look at, you know, these operations, in what ways does having those global presence help our U.S., branded operations?
0: Well, the the South American business, of course, the work we do in Argentina with our, I mean, Argentina is part of our winter work yeah. for our breeding entity. And so that's very, very important. You know, the actual brand in Latin America doesn't necessarily help the U.S. farmer dramatically. I guess it helps us keep tabs on what's going on in Latin America, and it keeps us competitive. There's obviously, there's a Latin American company that's in the U.S. right now trying to make huge strides, a great company. And then if you look at Europe, really, we have a lot to offer Europe just for the fact that we have conventional corn products. You know, corn products come out of our program as a conventional line first, then we convert them over to a traded product. So we have all these phenomenal conventional lines that we can bring into Europe and offer those farmers over there. And, you know, really, really what's going on in Europe relative to the U.S., it's tough to say that they're hard competitors because things are different there. (laughs) And unfortunately, they have to use non-GMO products or conventional products, and they don't have the the opportunity to use the, the traded material like you do here in the U.S., so, really, the U.S. farmer has a really good position
1: relative to these other markets. You know, something you said there just kind of sparked with me, the, the idea that, uh, you know, like you said, particularly in Europe, non-GMO is, is an important concept. And I would assume that from some of the major corn breeding entities, getting access to new non-GMO materials is probably not that easy because of the way their programs are built. Would it be fair to say they start out? right out of the gate with, you know, traded or GMO traded material. Right. Yeah. So in the in that case, because of the way we start our program, we would have conventional corn for them, whereas other companies might not. Or newer new genetics that come out conventional. Right. Exactly. Okay. So yeah, I guess to wrap it all up here, I think that that you mentioned obviously you know, U.S. is our home base. It's the market we know and love, and we've been here the longest. But what do you tell growers about why it's important that Steinseed is continuing to forge ahead and form some of these new markets around the globe? If I'm a customer to
0: anybody, I want that entity that I'm buying from to be financially stable. You know, if Steinseed Company is not financially stable, we're not able to continue to bring the services that we provide for us to be a global or to have a global presence keeps us financially stable keeps us should i say keeps us with the joneses you know we have these other brands growing we don't want to stop growing these other brands around us they're not going to stop growing we don't want to stop growing we want to do what it takes so we're able to take advantage of every opportunity we can to be as best as we can as, as a brand. And being involved on an international level helps us do that. If we weren't doing the work we're doing in South America on the breeding side, we would have a huge disadvantage relative to the competition. We would not be bringing our
1: customers here in the U.S. these high yielding genetics as quickly. Someone once said, if you're going into bargaining and you're not bargaining from a position of strength, then you're only going to get what they want you to get. And so it sounds to me like this is really about bargaining from a position of strength so that we can show that we're competitive on all fronts.
0: Yep. And your example of, you know, for instance, bringing the late material from Brazil into the southern part of the U.S. is another example. Just having that program, that breeding program down there, you never know, may bring a product here into the US for our southern market that's just a barnstormer. You don't know.
1: And so you need to be involved with those things to be as good as you can be. Awesome. Well, as always, it's great to have you on the podcast, Myron. I appreciate you coming on and, and talking about this, what I think is a really exciting chapter in our in, in our company's history and our expanding global presence. So thanks for for coming on and joining us today. Absolutely. I've enjoyed it. Well, that's our time for today. I want to thank our guests and our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Stein Seedcast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found.
0: Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit
1: steinseed.com. Stein has yield.